we are in this series called uh, The Story of David. And David is this interesting character in Scripture. Uh, he has so many different aspects of his life. And he was a shepherd. He was a warrior. He was a father. He was a king. Uh, and so each week we've been looking at a different aspect of his life. Today we're going to look at, at kind of a, a different aspect of his life. He was also uh, a fugitive. And so we're going to talk about that and what that means. Now, let me give you kind of some of the backstory. David's this shepherd from Beth- Bethlehem, uh, really an unlikely king, uh, the, the smallest of his siblings, not the person you would pick to become king, but Saul. Um, had disobeyed God had, and, and had, was having his kind of kingship removed from him. Uh, Samuel anointed David. All this has taken place. And so David is going to be anointed king, but he doesn't take the throne yet. Uh, he goes back to being a shepherd. Then we see him rise up and become a warrior and take on Goliath and slay the giant, uh, so to speak. And uh, we see that happen. And uh, we see Saul start, starting to get jealous about David. We see in the middle of that, David formed this unlikely friendship with Jonathan, which is what we talked about last week, um, and how he developed that that close-knit friendship with Jonathan. And then we see uh, Saul get more and more paranoid, start really going after David to kill him. And that's when David becomes this fugitive. Now, what is a, a fugitive? It's a person who has escaped from a place or is in hiding, especially to avoid arrest or persecution. It's someone that's on the run, someone that is being chased, someone uh, that has the law after them, so to speak. Now, uh, we've, I mentioned we were down at Houston Fest a bunch, and I, we love um, uh, traditional music, bluegrass music, and there's a couple of themes you see run through Appalachian music. Um, one of them, and it's, we, we've uh, talked about this a lot in our family, it's kind of interesting, it's funny, you'll, you have a lot of what I would call murder ballads uh, about killing people um, in Appalachian folklore, and, and it's always awesome, you know, you have a bluegrass man, they'll sing a murder ballad about shooting your woman with, with a forty-four, and then you go right into a gospel song right after it, you know, and that's kind of how bluegrass goes, and you have these up and down. But another thing that you see run throughout the music is this uh, kind of being on the run, right? Someone's after you. The police are after you. You're on the run. You escaped out of prison. You're a fugitive from justice. And that's really kind of the picture we have of David here. He's on the run. Saul is out to kill him. And so David is going to have to start making some choices. How is he going to survive uh, through all these ups and downs? At, at his highest, we see that he trusts God. We see that he, does, he, he, he understands God has been with him all this time. God's going to still be with him. He just needs to trust God. But at his lowest, we see him start doubting that and taking matters into his own hands uh, with the consequences that come along with that. And that's really what we're going to explore today. Um, uh, J.D. Greer said this in the Exalting Jesus commentary. He said, when we meet David in 1 Samuel 24, his life is not going well. His life to this point has followed a series of hills and valleys. He is anointed to be king, a high point by any standard, but he is immediately sent back to the sheep pasture where he's apparently forgotten from a hill to a, to a valley. He then has this big moment on the national, national stage when he takes down Goliath marries the king's daughter, and gets a job on Capitol Hill. Big times for little David. 
But David's job in Saul's court turns out to be a mixed bag when King Saul turns out to be an incredibly jealous egomaniac. And so Saul uses the state-controlled media to trash David's reputation. He takes David's wife away from him and gives her to someone else. He begins throwing spears in David's direction, hoping to impel him. This is definitely valley material. And so what we're going to see throughout David's life is this up and down, this roller coaster ride. At times it seems like everything is going great, and at times it seems like everything is going wrong. How many of you can relate to that? In life, it's like there are time, there are hills and those are their valleys. And, and the problem is we live for the hills, but we don't like the valleys. We don't like staying there. And we don't like, we don't understand that when we're in the, the uh, when we're on the hill, we've got to be preparing for the valley, right? And that's really what we're going to learn about David's life here. Let's jump in. Uh, let me give you some more backstory here to kind of bring us up to what I want to talk about today. But in 1 Samuel 21... We actually see what I would call one of the low points, one of the valleys here. David went to the town of Nob to see Amalek, the priest. Amalek trembled when he saw him and asked him, Why are you here? Why is no one with you? The king has sent me on a private matter, David said. He told me not to tell anyone why I'm here. I've told my men where to meet me later. Now what is there to eat? Give me five loaves of bread or anything else you have. Now, I'll stop right there for a minute. Has the king sent David? No, David's a fugitive. The king is after him to kill him. So what did David just do? He lied, right? He lied. He, 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 told, uh, he, he, just, he told a lie here in order to get something to eat. This shows how desperate he is. This shows how he's hungry. This shows how he's losing hope. Uh, David was called, you're not right, a man after God's own heart. And yet here he is like... God, I, I don't know. He, he, you see this doubt creeping in. And, and verse 7, it says something here that kind of throws in here that it, it's the danger sign that he should have recognized. Now, Doeg the Edomite, Saul's chief herdsman, was there that day, having been detained before the Lord. And, and so that one little statement should, one of Saul's guys was there watching. Do you think word's going to get back to Saul about this, right? In verse 8, David asked Amalek, Do you have a spear or a sword? The king's business was so urgent that I didn't even have time to grab a weapon. Uh, and he said, I only have the sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, the priest replied. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Take that if you want it, for there's nothing else here. And David said, There's nothing like it. Give it to me. So David escaped from Saul and went to the king Achish of Gath. But the officers of Achish were unhappy about his being there. Isn't this David, the king of the land, asked, Isn't he the one that the people honor with dances singing? Saul has killed his thousands and David his ten thousands. David heard these comments and was very afraid of what king Achish of Gath might do to him. So he pretended to be insane, scratching on doors and drooling down his beard. Definitely valley material here, right? We're seeing this is not the way that a king should be living. Now, I, there's several things that should concern us in this passage. One uh, that we already mentioned, he lied to the priest in order to get bread and a sword. That's, that's, uh, that's just showing that he's not really trusting God to provide what he needed. He doesn't need a sword. God already proved that when he met Goliath, right? He's already proved that he doesn't need a sword to, to do battle. God will take care of him. Um, but then, 
and I don't know if you noticed this, this, that this is, this is huge. He escapes and goes to Gath. Now, there was someone from Gath that we just read about a few weeks ago. Goliath was from Gath. So where is he going? He's going right into the middle of the enemy camp. He's going right in the middle of the Philistines, hoping that he can hide out there. Now, if you just killed their giant, right, their, their main warrior leader, and you go to hide there, you know, it, it, this is obviously it's been a few years later, but they did recognize him. And that's what people start saying, wait a minute. We know that guy. He, isn't he the one that killed Goliath? Isn't this the one that, we sing, that we've heard sing about, right? That they've made up this little song about. And this guy, and, and so the only way David could escape was by acting like he was crazy. Again, not really trusting God. He was somewhere he shouldn't have been in the first place. And so what we're seeing here is this, this, this up and down. There's times here David is not trusting God. And when we don't trust God, when we take matters into our own hands, and isn't that what Saul did? Didn't he take matters in his own hand, and that's what got him in trouble with God? That's what David's doing here. But it doesn't just affect you. It affects other people around you. And as we keep reading the story, it's got a pretty tragic ending here. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 18, uh, the Doeg has gone back to the king and told King Saul about it. And the king said to Doeg, you do it. So Doeg the Edomite turned on them and killed them that day, 85 priests in all, still wearing the priestly garments. You want to talk about Saul's fall from grace. This is his lowest. I mean, he's, he's gotten to the point now where at first he was just taking matters into his own hands. Now he has turned his back completely on God. He goes out, kills all the priests. But not only that, then he went to Nob, the town of the priests, killed the priests' families. How evil is this? Men and women, children and babies, and all the cattle, the donkeys, the sheep, and the goats. Only Abiathar, one of the sons of Amimelech, escaped and fled to David. And when he told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord, David exclaimed, I knew it. When I saw Doeg the Edomite there that day, I was sure that he was going to tell Saul, Now I have caused the death of all of your father's family. Stay here with me. Don't be afraid. I will protect you with my own life. For the same person wants to kill us both. Now think about this. David, this is, a, this is a turning point for David. What is he going to do now? He's realized when he takes matters into his own hands, when he fails to trust God, everything starts falling apart. And he just has this weight on him that his actions have directly resulted in all of the priests of God being murdered by King Saul. Now, he's got two choices here. He can, he can continue to run and, and do his own thing, or he can turn to God and trust him. And, and that's the choice that he has here. And so, 1 Samuel 22, if we back up, we'll kind of see what's going on here too. David left Gath. He escaped to the cave of Adullam. Soon his brothers and all his other relatives joined him there. Then others began coming, men who were in trouble or in debt or who were just discontented until David was the captain of about 400 men. And so his brothers were the very ones that were making fun of him when he killed Goliath. Now they're with him. Now they're realizing Saul is crazy. David is God's anointed. We are, we're putting all our eggs in his basket. But who else came and joined him? It was a bunch of misfits, right? A bunch of outcasts. 
These are the people that David's going to start investing in. He's going to start training. He's going to start developing. He ends up, we, we read throughout Scripture talking about David's mighty men and read about all their exploits and all the, the things that they do. And he, he had this incredible group of warriors around him. But it started with a group of misfits. It started in a cave as a fugitive hiding from the king. Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, what a turning point in David's life when he made the crucial decision not to walk away. He would accept his situation. He would make the best of it. It was a cave, so be it. If those around him needed leadership, he would provide it. Who would have ever guessed that the next king of Israel was training his troops in a dark cave where no one saw and nobody cared how unusual of God, but yet how carefully he planned it. And so we see this story. We see Saul getting farther and farther and farther away from God, turning his back on God completely. And we see David learning what it looks like to trust God and to walk with him. So that's all the introduction. Now I can actually get to the sermon. Don't you love it? Like, I mean, I, don't you love it when I'm like, okay, we've spent the last 20 minutes just giving you the backstory. Now we can actually, no. There's some lessons we can learn from, from the rest of this story. Here's the first one I want to share with you today. It, and it's simply this. Our desires and our circumstances are not good guides to the will of God. Now, I, I've got to break this down and explain it a little bit for you. But let me kind of put it this way. I've heard it said this way before. Maybe you've heard it said, an open door is not always the right door, right? Just because you have the opportunity to do something doesn't mean you should do it. And in addition to that, just because you have the desire to do something doesn't mean you should do it. Our circumstances and our desires don't always point us towards God's will. And so we've got to be careful because we are incredible at rationalizing and justifying our actions because of our circumstances. And you're going to see that in this story that David had an opportunity here to do something that was contrary to God's will. Uh, kind of 1 Samuel 24 is where we're going to be today for the, for the rest of the time. Um, and it says this, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops from all of Israel, and he went to search for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. Now, I said a few weeks ago I was going to try not to do this a lot, but I'm going to do it this morning, so sorry. En Gedi is an actual place in Israel that they know where it is, that we were able to go to uh, just a few weeks ago when we were there. One of the most beautiful places, uh, I think, one of, the, one of the places I enjoyed the most going to. Why is that? Let me show you a, a few pictures. Here's the first picture, um, and I'll, I'll kind of explain this. This is the Dead Sea. Um, all around the Dead Sea is desert. Uh, it's, it's like a scene from Star Wars, if I could explain it that way. It's desolate. You've got cliffs that are a thousand feet high overlooking the Dead Sea. There is nothing that lives there. It's just mile after mile of nothingness. No cities, no people. Uh, uh, you can't even imagine living there. In the middle of that, there's this little green spot that's an oasis. It's a literal oasis in the middle of the desert. 
And it's one of the only freshwater sources in all this whole entire area. And it's right on the Dead Sea. And it's in Getty. So it's still there. And so I'll show you a few pictures here. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of explain it. There are caves all around this area. So you look at the hillsides. That's what it looks like. There's little specks. Those are all caves that you can hide in. And as you walk up the trail... And so you walk up from like sea level to Dead Sea. It's a couple of miles up here. And I'll show you the next picture. Um, there's more caves here. You can kind of see there what the caves look like. And the next picture, um, here you get to this. Now, that's not what you expect to see there, is it? In the middle of a desert, you don't expect to see this huge waterfall. Um, and so... Uh, if you, I've got a video, but you need to turn the sound on the computer to hear it because I want you to hear the water on it. Uh, but uh, let's look at this video uh, of this area. slide there. Uh, I show you that because that was just, it's an incredible place. It just kind of takes your breath away. That is where David was hiding in Getty. It's a natural, it, it's all the wildlife is there and it even mentions here he went to the place of the, the rocks of the wild goats. Uh, there is these animals called I, ibexes that are everywhere. They look like antelope with the horns in the desert, where are all the animals going to come? They're going to come to the water. So just walking up there, you see animals and wildlife everywhere. And so it's a wildlife refuge now in Israel. Um, and I just share that because, I don't know for you, but for me, when you go and you see something like that, you're like, okay, that's a real place. There are real caves there. The stories in Scripture, the descriptions in Scripture that were written thousands of years ago line up directly with what actually is there. It's just more affirmation, more confirmation that we can trust God's Word. And so that's a beautiful place. And they actually think David was hiding in one of the caves by that waterfall. But the cave goes all the way back through the mountain. It's huge. And so there's plenty of room for 400 people back through the cave. And so they think that's where he was. And so let's keep reading the story uh, to see what happens. At the place where the road passes some, some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. Here's one of those uh, interesting stories of the Bible, I would say. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power to do with as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. His men are telling him, now's your opportunity. It's a perfect chance for David to finally take the throne while Saul is on the throne. Sorry. It's his perfect chance. It's his, I mean, his men are like, look, this is the perfect time. He won't be able to fight back, okay? Um, and so uh, this is one the, another reason you know the Bible is true. Who else is going to put in the Bible a story about someone relieving themselves in a cave, okay? Now, this is craziness. 
uh, J.D. Greer talks about this in his commentary. He says, Saul walks into the cave to find a private place to do his private business, okay? Little does he know that his bathroom stall is also David's secret hideout. The awkwardness for David's men, however, wears off quickly once they realize this is their opportunity. Saul could hardly be in a more vulnerable position. So David's friends see this as a God-ordained moment for him to take revenge. David, coincidences like this just don't happen. If ever circumstances pointed to God's will, here it is. God promises, here's your chance, and take it. And here is where it gets confusing. Because it looks like circumstances are lining up for David to take the throne by, by killing Saul right here. The, the, everything is lining up. His men are like, you need to do it. You need to go ahead and take him out. Take matters into your own hand. Take revenge. And David, though, luckily had the foresight to remember, okay, when I've taken matters into my own hands before, things did not turn out well. I've got to trust God. I've got to trust God. Can, can I tell you, I, I, there's so many times that I've heard people justify their sin because of circumstances. And sometimes it's revenge. Yeah, well, if you knew what they did to me, you would understand why I replied to them this way. Or, or that, that email I sent, that, that message I sent, that gossip I shared, I did it because of what they did to me. And because if, if once you saw that, then you, I'm right, I can do this because they've hurt me and I'm going to hurt them back. The circumstance, we explain away our sin because of our circumstances. We do this in relationships. One person, uh, they'll be having marriage problems and the like. But, but this person just understands me. This is my soulmate. They just, um, and, and so we'll leave your spouse to go where you think the grass is greener because it looks like this open door and the circumstance, this worked out. This must be right because it feels right. I have this desire. I have this opportunity. I have this desire. I have this opportunity. So this is what I'm, I should do. We, we do the same thing with money, right? Uh, you go through the store and you're like, this is on sale. I can, you know, I can't turn, I can't pass up this deal. You're like, do you have the money for it? No, but I'm going to buy it. Why? Because I have the opportunity. I have the opportunity. We, we'll explain away anything. We'll rationalize our actions. Why? Because we think open doors, we think open opportunities mean that we should do it. Can I just tell you, you've got to stop. You've got to start thinking about, is this God's will? We've got to start comparing it back to God's word. God's, you're ne God is never going to lead you to do something that goes against his word. Never. He's never going to lead you to do something that's in direct disobedience to his word. So we've got to stop using our feelings and our circumstances and our desires to rationalize our actions. And so uh, David has this choice right here. He's got to choose, what am I going to do? Uh, and so that leads me to my next point. And this is an important one. The easy way out of trouble is rarely the best way. The easy way out of trouble is rarely the best way. So many times we have a choice to make. Am I going to take the easy way out? Am I going to do what is easiest or am I going to do what is right? 
Because when we do what is right, often it's hard. It requires sacrifice. Sometimes it requires suffering. It requires ourselves to humble ourselves. It requires us to do things that go against sometimes our, our human nature. We want to get even. We want to get back. We want to do what feels good and feels right and do what's easy for us and best for us. And God says, no, you need to do what is my will for your life. And so as we keep reading this story, we see what happens. Verse 5, 1 Samuel 24, David's conscience begins bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He starts even regretting cutting Saul's robe. And we could get into the whole uh, the, 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 the imagery of the robe and how that shows kingship and how David was cutting that off, was showing his king, kingship was taken away from Saul. But he, he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this to, to my lord the king. This was also his father-in-law. This, but he's referring to him as my, uh, the, the king, my lord. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one, for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men. He did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone on his way, David came out and shouted after them, My Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, Why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it's, it, it, is, it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave, and some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said, I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father, what I have in my hand, it's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I'm not trying to harm you and that I've not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. There's a lot we learn here. The easy way out would have been for David just to take his sword out, to kill Saul. To, to, that would be a highway straight to the palace. It would immediately mean he would take the throne. And now it would mean he'd have to, he, he could quit hiding. He could quit running. It would mean that there's no more wilderness, no more shepherding. That he could just go and assume his role as king. That's the easy way out. But it's rarely the best way. It, it wasn't the right time in God's plan. And so instead of fast forwarding, instead of skipping ahead, God said, no, you need to go through this period in your life. Now, if you have cable TV or um, satellite, you, you've probably become accustomed and used to and even dependent upon DVR, right? They call it different things. But it's the ability, right, to record a show and then go back and watch it and skip through, you know, skip through the parts of it. My kids, uh, you know, we do, you know, they, they make fun of us because they were like, when, back in my day, we couldn't skip ahead. We couldn't skip commercials and we couldn't, we had to watch a show when it actually came on TV. And if you missed it, you missed it, Right. You couldn't, but now you can record everything, and now it's so convenient because as soon as it gets to a part that you don't like, that makes you uncomfortable, or that is boring, like a commercial, you just skip right ahead. 
And have you ever, it's fun to watch a football game or a basketball game or a baseball game and skip through all the commercials and skip through all the timeouts and just like, it's amazing how fast it goes and how much more exciting it is. But that's beside the point. But we want to do the same thing with our life sometimes. We want to like, we get to a point that makes us uncomfortable. We get to a point that we are bored. We get to a point we don't like. We, we just let, let, let me hit the fast forward button, the easy button. The, the, let's skip ahead. Let's just blow right past this and keep going. To some, let's get to the good part. right? And let, let's go ahead. Let's get to that part and let's skip where we're at. And, and there are lessons to be learned in the valley. There are lessons to be learned when we're suffering. There are lessons to be learned when things don't go the way we expect or intend. Those are the points where we learn to trust God. Those are the points in our life that God builds our character, that God makes us who we are. And it's those points we've got to choose. David had the opportunity to skip his life of suffering. He had a chance to fast forward right to the throne, and yet that was not God's plan. And he had learned this shows his maturity. This shows that he was growing. This shows that he was learning to trust God. God was preparing him to be king and learn that the easy way is not always the right way. And, and so that leads me then to my next point. Maturity is measured by obedience and attitude. Uh, maturity is not measured by who's the first one to act and who's the first one uh, to go out and battle in, a, in, in this situation here. It's measured by restraint. It's measured by his obedience to God and his attitude in doing it. Uh, let's keep going in the story. When David had finished speaking, Saul called back, Is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry, and he said to David, You are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today, for when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today, and now I realize that you are surely going to be king, and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when, you, when this happens, you will not kill my family, destroy my line of descendants. So David promised this to Saul with an oath, and then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. And so what this is showing is Saul understands David's maturity. Saul understands that God is blessing David. And what eventually is going to happen, David is going to be the king who comes to the throne, who is able to unify the nation of Israel. He's able to bring them together, to, together and establish the, 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 the capital in, in Jerusalem and the city of David. And, and we see all this happen because David waited on the Lord. David trusted God. David didn't take matters in his own hands. And we also see that David had the right attitude when he did this. Now, if you have kids, you know when you tell your kids to do something, um, they can respond in, a, really, I'd say three main different ways. One way is you tell them, hey, go take out the trash. One way they respond is, okay, I'll do it. And you get the eye roll, you get the sassiness, you, get the, you just get the, you know what I'm talking about, parents? You ever had that happen? 
That's one way. The other way, this is, this is the one that gets interesting when this happens, when they say, no, I ain't going to do it. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that. <laughs> when the direct disobedience, there are consequences. Well, I'm just going to leave it there, okay? But there are times when they're... And then there are times, though, that they say, sure, I would love to do that. What else can I do for you today? I, that actually happens from time to time, right? Um, especially as your, your teenagers get older and become human again. That happens a lot. You know, that, that can happen. And, and so we do the same thing with God. When God directs us to do something, sometimes we give him the eye rolling and the sass and like, I ain't going to do that. Why should I? Okay, I'll do it, but I'm not going to enjoy it. Right? We, we do that. We're like, God, I, I don't want to teach this class. God, I don't want to do this i don't want to help with that i don't want to serve here i don't we we give god the attitude and there are times we just like buck up against god and say no i'm not going to do it direct disobedience it has consequences and then there are times though that we get to the point where our obedience matches our attitude and our attitude is like god i'm so thankful for you i'm going to do whatever i can and i'm going to do it gladly now which way do you think is what god prefers which way do you think David is learning here? David, and we read, there's like three different psalms. We'll get to one in a minute that he writes when he's in this cave hiding. And we see that his attitude is also growing. He's learning what it looks like to, to truly follow God. And we see this in the New Testament. James says it this way. He says, Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. And so I read this this week. I'll share it with you. He said, few of us will ever be presented with a situation as remarkable as David's, at least in the specific details of being the object of repeated murder attempts. Yet the same choices lie before any believer when confronted with injustice or disappointment. When the path we follow takes a direction we do not expect, will we take matters into our own hands or will we trust God to wait? The wrongful action of taking matters into our own hands takes several forms. As in this story, it may be sheer revenge, taking vengeance into our own hands. Someone wrongs us, and we act to settle the score. So when a man's wife treats him poorly, he cheats on her with little regret. Or when an employee is belittled by her boss, she responds by ruining his reputation or undercutting his authority. Uh, the, the common feature here is not the extent of the vengeance, but the heart behind it, the attitude. You have hurt me, so when given the opportunity, I will respond in kind. The practical problem with such a response, in addition to the theological problem, is that we consistently overestimate the wrong done against us. And so we can't be trusted to pass judgment on others. In other words, we aren't God. And we have to learn to let God be God. We have to learn to trust Him to do what needs to be done. And we just follow him we become obedient we listen we learn we trust we uh, this all this this our obedience is what God is asking for and so um, David wrestled with this and I'll, I'll read one of the psalms that he wrote in the cave and this is Psalm 57 uh, and this is what he said he said have mercy on me 
O God, have mercy. I look to you for protection. I will hide beneath the shadow of your wings until the danger passes by. I cry out to God most high, to God who will fulfill his purpose for me. He will send help from heaven to rescue me, disgracing those who hound me. My God will send forth his unfailing love and faithfulness. I'm surrounded by fierce lions who greedily devour human prey, whose teeth pierce like spears and arrows and whose tongues cut like swords. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. My enemies have set a trap for me. I am weary from distress. They have dug a deep pit in my path, for they themselves have fallen into it. My heart is confident in you, O God. My heart is confident. No wonder I can sing your praises. Wake up, my heart. Wake up, O lyre and harp. I will wake the dawn with my song. I will thank you, Lord, among all the people. I will sing your praises among the nations, for your unfailing love is as high as the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the highest heavens. May your glory shine over all the earth. What kind of attitude did he have? One of gratitude, one of thankfulness. It's not one of complaining, not one of rationalization, not one of trying to justify. He's just saying, God, I'm going you to, you're the one that's going to protect me. You're the one who I'm going to trust. You're the one I'm going to follow. That's the same attitude we have got to have when we go through the trials in life that we face. And I want to leave you with this question. Are we willing to patiently wait on God? Are we willing to patiently wait on God? Or do we constantly feel like, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to, I've got, we have control issues. And what that is, is ourselves trying to assume the throne of, of God in our life. It's us trying to take control of our life and not trust God with it. And so we, David waiting, does, it means that he um, it means that he is going to wait on God. It doesn't mean he does nothing. It means he's going to trust God to guide him step by step by step. That he's not going to take action in, in, until God leads him to do what God is calling him to do. He's trusting God. So it's an active waiting. It's not doing nothing, but it's listening to God every step of the way. So I want to ask you today, you know, we really, this all comes down to, are we willing to walk with Jesus? Are we willing to follow him? And, and for, for some of you here today, you've been a believer a long time. You've grown up in church. You, you've put your faith in Jesus. But you still trug, struggle giving God full control of your life. You still struggle because you want to, you want to, you kind of want to take control. You're like, God, I'll follow you when it matches up with my plans. And for some of you today, God is just saying, I've got to start trusting. I've got to stop trying to do everything on my own. And I've got to start seeking God's will in my life. For some of you here, for some watching online possibly, you're here and you're like, I've never really put my faith and my trust in Jesus to start with. And all this talk of following him and trusting him, I just don't understand. Today is the day that you can start your journey. Today is the day that you can surrender your life to Jesus and and we use that word surrender. We, we say we yield ourselves. And, and what this means is when we make Jesus the Lord of our life, in essence, what we're doing, we're surrendering. We're saying, I'm tired of doing things my way. I'm going to trust God you to lead my life. I'm going to trust you. 
So it means that we take ourselves off the, the, as king of our own life and we make Jesus the king of our life. And so you do that by confessing your sin, by, by acknowledging Jesus died for you on the cross, by believing in him and in him alone to save you. That's what salvation is. That's what being born again means. It, it's not going to church. It's not, uh, it's not giving money. It's not No, the way you are saved is by putting your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to ask us to respond today. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. The praise team is going to come back up. But I want to pray with you guys. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to trust you more. Help us to wait on you when we want to take control, when we want to do and, and move forward in, in action. Help us to show restraint and just simply to trust you. Where you speak clearly, Lord, help us to follow you. And when our desires and our circumstances are leading us astray, help us to recognize it so we can just continue to follow you. And Lord, I pray for those who don't know you as their Lord and Savior. The, the most important decision you will ever make in life is the decision to surrender to Jesus. To say, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. I believe in you. I believe that you died on the cross for my sin. But, but Lord, help me. Help me to, to live for you. Help me to, to, to learn what it looks like to live like Jesus. To have this, the right attitude to obey, not out of obligation, but out of love. Heavenly Father, I pray for the people in this room, knowing that some people here today are in the middle of a valley right now. And that they need hope. They need strength. They need peace, and they can find that in you. Lord, we just thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus, and we want to praise him today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.